All right. Not to break up the party. Sorry for interrupting like 17 conversations, not just one. Uh, <clears throat> how y'all doing this morning? Good. I got two goods. That was great. Uh, my name is Jordan Anderson. I am one of the elders here at Hope Community Church, Columbia Heights. Uh, super glad to, to be with you uh, this morning. Uh, every once in a while, uh, the, the elders uh, want to give Drew the opportunity to not have to preach, uh, just to allow him time to, to rest and do other things. And lo and behold, uh, today he's actually hanging out with our kids. Uh, and so I thought that was kind of cool. Uh, we are in a summer series. There it is. Not just another story. Uh, we're looking at different passages throughout the Bibles, uh, different stories, many of them parables, and we are seeing how they are connected to the larger story of uh, the gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ, uh, that at one time, everything was good, everything was perfect, uh, there wasn't any brokenness. This was in a garden, the Garden of Eden. Uh, and everything was just great and perfect. Uh, but sin entered the world uh, and a curse fell over everything. Uh, there was death, pain, sickness, all this stuff that wasn't supposed to be. Something that was true has now been lost. And much of the Old Testament is communicating God's promises to undo that curse at some point, to redeem his people and to find his people again and claim him, uh, them as his own. That's where we get to Jesus, okay? The redemption plan of God has been put in place uh, and the curse of sin and death has been, has been put on Jesus instead of us and all of God's promises, all of the Old Testament is crescendoing and pointing to Jesus as the way back to God, the way to, to be found. Uh, eventually, someday, everything will be restored and it won't be a garden, it'll be a glorious city uh, in which we will have a personal, intimate connection with each other called the church. But more importantly, we'll have a personal, intimate connection with, with God. Uh, and all of the brokenness, all of the sickness, all of the ickiness of life that we feel will be gone. And our aim today is to look at a parable, a, a story that fits into this, this greater story of the gospel and then ask how, how might we respond to it. So today we're continuing along right in Luke chapter 16, basically where uh, Pastor Steve last week, uh, our senior pastor, uh, was here. Uh, we're going to pick up basically where he left off. Uh, and if you weren't here last week, highly recommend, give it a go, take it a listen. Um, tough sledding with that passage, but I thought he did a great job. Uh, before we get into Luke 16, though, Trixie, okay, we're actually going to uh, go back and look at Luke 15, 
I want to share with you something that uh, I came across this past week that I thought was really compelling and helpful as we look at our passage uh, for this week. Between Luke 15 and Luke 16, there's, there's five parables, and there's this, there's this story arc between these five that I think is going to be uh, really fun for us to look at. So uh, if you have your Bibles, turn to Luke 15. Otherwise, everything will be up on the screen. So Luke 15, parable of the lost sheep. Now notice before we dig in how this starts. The, ta- uh, the tax collectors and sinners were all gathering around to hear Jesus. But the Pharisees and the teachers of the law muttered, this man welcomes sinners and eats with them. Okay, so Jesus knows this, Jesus hears this, and his response is to tell them a bunch of parables. Okay, so first one, parable of lost sheep. Jesus told them this parable. Suppose one of you has a hundred sheep and loses one of them. Doesn't he leave the 99 in the open country and go after the lost sheep until he finds it? And when he finds it, he joyfully puts it on his shoulders and goes home. Then he calls his friends and neighbors together and says, rejoice with me, I have found my lost sheep. I tell you in the same way, there will be more rejoicing in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous persons who do not need to repent. Okay. Next one, parable of lost coin. Or suppose, suppose a woman has 10 silver coins and loses one. Doesn't she light a lamp, sweep the house, search carefully until she finds it? And when she finds it, she calls her friends and neighbors together and says, rejoice with me, I have found my lost coin. In the same way I tell you, there is rejoicing in the presence of the angels of God over one sinner who repents. Now these parables are fairly self-explanatory in that when something is lost... The desire is that it's to be found again, and oftentimes at a great effort and cost to, to be found. So, sheep, coin, that moves us into the third parable. I just like these images. Okay. The parable of the lost son, parable of the prodigal son, or parable of lost sons, okay? I'm going to kind of just summarize these because these are uh, a bit longer. The younger son, okay, father has two sons. The younger son says to his dad, effectively, I wish you were dead. Uh, Give me my inheritance early. Uh, I don't want to be living with you anymore. And he goes off and lives a wild life, eating, drinking, carousing, like all the things, To the father's perspective, his younger son is now just like the lost sheep or the lost coin, okay? It's easy to now recognize that something is missing. I had something, now I don't. The manifestation and embodiment of lostness is real. It's easy to recognize. Now the turn, though, is the younger son, after having spent all of this money, living a wild life, comes to his senses, okay, he's, he's full of shame, he's run out of money, he's, he's doing things that uh, even he's ashamed of, and he desires to return 
to the Father, just hoping to become like one of the hired hands. Not even family anymore. I just, I just want to be in your, your presence because I know I'll still be taken care of. He's been humbled. In this state of humbled shame, he returns home, but his father sees him a long way off. And what does his father do? He runs to the younger son, which, okay, a couple things. Old men don't run back then. Okay? That would have been very shameful. He would have had to have, have lifted up his robe, exposing his legs. That's a no-no. Okay? Okay? And runs to the younger son. The younger son's shame is met with shame, is met with compassion and mercy. But as I mentioned, this is a parable that has two brothers. That's the younger brother. Now we get to the older brother. The older brother is frustrated, angry. He confronts his father saying, I've followed all of your rules. I've been the one that's done everything I've supposed to do. And yet, This son of yours, he can't even call him a brother, this son of yours comes back after living an extremely sinful life and you kill the fattened calf for him? See, the older brother is confusing transaction for relationship. He's confusing formula instead of familiarity. The older brother, I'm contending, is just as lost, but the biggest difference, though, is that his lostness doesn't look like lostness to the world. He was doing everything right, okay? But he's spiritually and relationally deficient. Now, here, here's my contention. Here's the arc that, that I kind of came across. As much as the lost sheep and the lost coin kind of resemble the younger brother, the older brother, if we push that forward into the fourth and fifth parables, help us kind of get an idea of maybe what Jesus is, is trying to get at, okay? Steve hit on the fourth parable last week. It's a doozy. Give it a listen. We're not touching that one today, <laughs> okay? Let's get into the fifth parable. We're in Luke 16. Oh, yeah, here's, oh, yeah, I made this. I'm, I'm not like Drew, guys. This is, this is the best you're going to get, okay? Okay, but it's, it's an arc. I used Canva. <laughs> guys, guys, this is huge for me, okay? Thank you, thank you. Okay, all right, Luke 16, 19 through 31. There was a rich man who was dressed in purple and fine linen and lived in luxury every day. At his gate was laid a beggar, named Lazarus, covered with sores and longing to eat what fell from the rich man's table. Even the dogs came and licked his sores. The time came when the beggar died and the angels carried him to Abraham's side. The rich man also died and was buried. In Hades, where he was in torment, he looked up and saw Abraham far away with Lazarus by his side. So he called to him, Father Abraham, have pity on me, 
and send Lazarus to dip the tip of his finger in water and cool my tongue because I am in agony in this fire. But Abraham replied, son, remember that in your lifetime you received your good things while Lazarus received bad things. But now he is comforted here and you are in agony. And besides all this, between us and you, a great chasm has been set in place so that those who want to go from here to you cannot, nor can anyone cross over from there to us. He answered, then I beg you, Father, send Lazarus to my family, for I have five brothers. Let him warn them so that they will not also come to this place of torment. Abraham replied, they have Moses and the prophets. Let them listen to them. No, Father Abraham, he said. But if someone from the dead goes to them, they will repent. He said to him, if they do not listen to Moses and the prophets, they will not be convinced, even if someone rises from the dead. Okay, first off, there's an elephant in the room, okay? Let's talk about it. This passage refers to some sort of afterlife, okay? The reference of Abraham's side, uh, or some of your translations uh, might have Abraham's bosom, okay? Like literal, like literal side, okay? And then Hades, or even just just hell. Uh, Some have interpreted this as heaven and hell. Others have uh, thought this maybe refers more to like the intermediate state, okay? I, nope, (laughs) I'm not going there. I don't want us to get hung up on that uh, because one, I don't think that that's necessarily the main point of this passage-ish, okay? And as a general interpretive guideline, it's tricky if you specifically use parables or stories to help you develop and create theology. Now, this this is what I mean. Heaven and hell is a dynamic in this story. No one can deny that. But can this story be used to generate our most robust understanding of heaven and hell? We need the whole of scripture to do that. Okay? So, We'll come back to the elephant. We'll come back to this dynamic, okay? But hopefully in a way that will make uh, a, a little bit more sense. So let's dive into the parable. Let's kind of work through here uh, to help us understand some of the many, many, many layers. Uh, we're gonna uh, dive into some first century Jewish customs and kind of like some social world expectations, okay? So we start off, There's a rich man. He's dressed in purple with fine linen, okay? From that very first sentence, we can hit pause. Jesus has given us information, but also enough information to to make interpretations. Anytime that we see or read of purple clothing, we can have probably a pretty good understanding there's wealth involved, but like, like richity, rich wealth. Okay, purple cloth was extremely expensive to produce. 
uh, oftentimes only reserved for the elite or even royalty, okay? So everyone wears clothes. Everyone wears clothes. We get that, right? But sometimes uh, things can be external clues to someone's financial situation, similar to how a lot of us drive cars, okay? But if I tell you I have a friend that's driving down the road in, a, uh, in his Rolls Royce, okay, that's an external clue that, that he's got a lot of money, okay? This guy has a lot of money. We know he has a gate, which likely means he's, he has a wealthy compound or in a state, and that he has food aplenty. Because later it says, Lazarus longing to eat what fell from the rich man's table. This is likely a reference to any time that there was a banquet, okay, there's no utensils back then, there's no knife, fork, spoon, there's not even napkins, but they did have bread, so they'd use the bread as a way to get food into their mouth, okay? And then they'd also like wipe their hands and then they'd just throw it away, okay? There's excess food coming from this guy's table, okay? The summary statement, lived in luxury every day. Every single day, there's luxurious living. In contrast, there's a guy at his gate. He's a beggar, okay? He's covered in sores. Dogs attend to his needs. Let's break this down. Instead of having fine clothing, okay, we've got purple and linen over here. Instead of fine clothing, this guy is clothed with skin ulcers, okay? Big contrast. That would have made him ceremonially unclean. Dogs licking his sores would have even like been a double strike against him. He would have been a social outcast, okay, a, a pariah. Uh, he's lying at the gate. This could mean that he's a cripple and he's completely dependent his only source of subsistence is the generosity of others, okay? But lastly, he has a name, Lazarus. Now, what's really interesting is this is the only parable, not only in Luke, but of any of the Gospels, this is the only parable of Jesus in which one of the main characters gets a name. Every other parable is there was a man who had a hundred sheep, or there was a woman who had 10 coins, or there was a rich man, okay? Lazarus is the Latinized version of Eleazar, which translates to God is my help. And this is the first tricksy, topsy-turvy clue from Jesus that that not all is as it seems with, with this parable. See, back then, first century Jewish culture was all about honor and shame. And thus far, all external realities would indicate that the rich man is honored and Lazarus is the one in shame. But if that's actually true, 
Why was Lazarus named and the rich man wasn't? See, honored people are known and named. Dishonored people have their names blotted out. We'll come back to this in a little bit. Moving on, they both died. Lazarus is carried by the angels to Abraham's side, again, to the bosom of Abraham, indicating extreme closeness, intimacy, and honor. Abraham is the father to all the faithful. And if you have somebody being described as being right next to to Abraham, that that is a place of honor. The rich man dies and was buried. Notice there's no mention of Lazarus being buried. Okay. Okay. And he goes to Hades or hell where he is in torment. So not by Abraham's side, but far away. Somehow he sees Abraham. I, I don't get that. But somehow he sees Abraham far away, says, Father Abraham, have pity on me and send Lazarus to dip the tip of his finger in water and cool my tongue because I am in agony in this fire. The rich man knows Lazarus' name. Let that hit you. The rich man knew who Lazarus was and didn't attend to his needs. Jumping back up top, it's kind of in gray, okay? But jumping back up top, the dogs were doing a better job of taking care of the needy and the poor than this rich man was. But even now, he expects Lazarus to become an errand runner. Relieve me of my torment, he pleads, Allow Lazarus to cool my tongue just like the dog's tongues provided him with comfort. Dr. Edeyomo says it this way. The sin of the rich man is that he has no heart. He looks at a man with a name but does not ask him his name. He saw Lazarus' hunger and pain, but did nothing about it. He accepted the poverty of Lazarus as a part of the normal order of things and thought it perfectly natural and inevitable that Lazarus should lie in hunger, pain, suffering, sickness, and ultimately in death while he wallowed in luxury. There are none so blind as those who will not see. After death, this man receives the punishment due to one who had not practiced Ubuntu, which is humanity or humane treatment towards another, and acknowledged that Lazarus was a fellow human being. He had failed to see Lazarus as a brother and a neighbor, relishing his wealth and enjoying the envy it aroused in others. He did not realize until it was too late that a life characterized by individualism and a refusal to share one's bread with one's neighbor is detestable in God's sight. Friends, there's, there's no getting around the warning that this parable has. 
It's hard hitting, but still worth a, a pause to consider how are we using the resources that God has given us to pursue the things that God cares most about? Jesus asked, what's the greatest commandment? Love God, love others. We love others because we love God. True faith in us produces an outpouring, an an overflow to give, not to hoard, to serve, not to be served, to look to others' needs, not just our own. The, The listeners of this parable this story that includes us are being warned and admonished to pay attention. Okay. Moving on to verse 25. Okay. Abraham and the rich man are in, in a dialogue. Abraham replied, son, remember that in your lifetime you received your good things while Lazarus received bad things. But now he is comforted here and you are in agony. And besides all this, between us and you, a great chasm has been set in place so that those who want to go from here to you cannot, nor can anyone cross over from there to us. What I want to get out of this, again, flirting with the elephant that's over there, okay? Jesus is communicating there are consequences and there's permanence. That if we treat others lesser, if we take what God has intended as a resource to be used for love, pursuit of justice, grace, truth, and use it for ourselves, there are consequences. But what he is not communicating is karma. I think it's really easy for us to, to read a passage like this and pull out of it what we are most used to hearing or even believing, okay? These are just funny. Okay. I think my favorite was the donkey. Just like, that's, it it got me. Okay. Okay. Our world, uh, our culture loves the idea of karma, right? What, uh, What goes around comes around. You get what's coming to you. Okay. So let's push into this a little bit. Was the rich man in Hades because he was rich? No. If that were so, Abraham, who is considered extremely wealthy, would not be able to be there either. Okay? It's what he used his wealth for, his heart. He used his wealth for himself. You see, our devotion to God is often seen in how we care for others. There's a saying that we are saved by faith in Jesus Christ alone, but the faith that saves is never alone. I'm going to say that again. We are saved by faith in Jesus Christ alone, but the faith that saves is never alone. Again, greatest commandment, love God, love others. Conversely, was Lazarus considered righteous because he was poor? And we we have to answer no. Someone's worldly wealth simply cannot be an indication of someone's ability 
to get into heaven. But here's where we need to be really careful. Be that as it may that our financial status doesn't equate with where we're going after we die, we all still love keeping score. It's an aspect of karma, right? It's like, I feel wronged, I went negative, and I expect something to happen such that I, I go positive or maybe more so, the other person goes negative, okay? We're all very quick to pay attention when it feels like we're losing in whatever score we're trying to keep. Remember the older brother. Meanwhile, the older son was in the field when he came near the house. He heard music and dancing. So he called one of his servants, asked him what was going on. Your brother's come, he replied. And your father has killed the fattened calf because he has him back safe and sound. The older brother became angry and refused to go in. So his father went out, pleaded with him. But he answered his father, look, all these years I've been slaving for you and never disobeyed your orders, yet you never gave me even a young goat so I could celebrate with my friends. He was keeping score before his younger brother even showed back up. He was paying attention to how often his father gave him special things. He had this formula such that he, he believed, I've been slaving for you. And I, I don't even get a goat. Okay. Now for us, this could be money. Okay, our, our scorecard may, maybe looks like money comparison to others. Could be possessions, could be degrees, could be relationship status, could be grades. I don't know. Whatever it might be though, we certainly want to win or at very least, we don't want to lose. And when it starts to feel like we're losing, we call life unfair and expect karma to bring about fairness. That's not how God's economy works. God's economy is such that we're all in the negative, friends. And yet he responds out of love, grace, mercy, truth, justice, anyways. All right, finishing up the passage. The rich man answers, then I beg you, Father, send Lazarus to my family, for I have five brothers. Let him warn them so that they will not also come to this place of torment. Abraham replied, they have Moses and the prophets. Let them listen to them. No, Father Abraham can hear the, the desperation. But if someone from the dead goes to them, they will repent. He said to him, if they do not listen to Moses and the prophets, they will not be convinced even if someone rises from the dead. The rich man desperately wanted Lazarus to go back and tell his brothers. Again, kind of assuming that Lazarus would still be the one in, in service. Okay. He's literally asking Lazarus, though, to be raised from the dead, which is funny because there's, there's another story in the Bible about a guy named Lazarus who does actually. Yeah, it's funny. Anyways, probably not the same guy. Anyways, Jesus' reply is that they already have Moses and the prophets. It's enough. Jesus is saying there's nothing wrong with the message. 
But there's something wrong with the audience. I'll say that again. There's nothing wrong with the message, but there is something wrong with the audience. Even a miracle, a miracle of miracles, somebody rising from the dead, they wouldn't listen. But we must remember Jesus is telling this story, this parable. Okay, let's, let's zoom out. Let's get out of the story a little bit. He's telling this story to a live audience. Meaning none of them are dead yet. None of them have, have gotten to the point of the culmination of the, of the rich man. He wants the listeners to respond, not to become the permanent crescendo of the older brother type. Does that make sense? The warning of this parable is such that if you are an older brother type, and if you don't turn, you don't repent, if you keep, continue keeping score in whatever formula you've concocted, your heart might become so hard, consequences and permanence. But here's the beauty of why I think this is the only parable in which a main character gets a name. Lazarus, meaning God is my help. See, parables are told to teach and to invoke to teach about the realities of the kingdom of God and to invoke a response from the hearers. The response for them and the response for us is the same. The invitation for all of us to be named as Lazarus is named, God is my help. That's the invitation to become like a Lazarus, to say, no, 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 I need help. And the warning and the invitation is real and it's valid and available to them and it's real and valid and available for us. If we take all of these five parables as an arc, none of us have a positive score when it comes to righteousness. We're all lost. We're all the lost sheep the lost coin, the prodigal son, the older brother, the unjust servant, the rich man, and the beggar. And God responds to those who are in need. So in, in turn, we look for help. We ask for help. We look to the one who has conquered sin and death, who has conquered the grave, who owns a cattle on a thousand hills, but became like a beggar so that we could become richly blessed in the heavenly realms, as Ephesians 1 says. We look to the one who not only knows every sheep in his pasture, but every hair on your head and spares no expense to redeem what was lost. We turn to the father who meets our shameful sin with the shame of the cross. And we sang uh, Amazing Grace to, to start off our service. And, and the lyric, I once was lost, but now I'm found. 
I'm, I'm hoping that this gives fresh meaning to, to that lyric. So I'm going to invite the, the worship team to come on up. And as they come up, many of you know this, but it's a good reminder. Uh, we build our services such that uh, we are crescendoing to have a chance to respond to the good news of Jesus. For starters, we usually have some questions for you to ponder. Okay. Do you recognize your own lostness? Do you recognize your need to become a Lazarus, one who is named God is my help? What score are you trying to keep? A question like this might reveal what you're paying attention to, what you're dwelling on. How might you trust in God's sovereignty over that thing? How might your eyes be opened to the needs of those around you? How might you become generous? Now, generosity is not the opposite. Generosity is not the answer. Generosity is a response, okay? Generosity is an overflow of us understanding that the gospel has changed us, that, that money is just a resources, uh, a resource possessions don't have any mastery over us and we can become generous just like we have a generous God. And then lastly, who in your life might need to hear about a God who searches for and redeems the lost? Additionally, we can respond by taking communion. Uh, what are a great reminder that we bring nothing to this table, friends. It has, been, it has been set before us by Jesus. Christ has set out a feast for us anyways. And as a reminder, we, we remember what he's done and he's accomplished on the cross and look forward to the feast when everything is restored. You don't have to be a member of Hope or a member of any church, uh, but we would ask that you are a follower of Jesus. Uh, that you've said yes, that you've said yes, I need your help. Uh, we're going to sing uh, a few songs. At any time, feel free to go take communion. Uh, we'll have people in the back that would love the opportunity to pray for you. I know that can sometimes be a little scary, okay? But even just like a general prayer, it's like, hi, my name's Jordan. I'd love for you just to pray over me. That's it, okay? And lastly, we can give. Again, we don't give out of compulsion, but out of generosity, the generosity that's been shown to us. If you're feeling led to give, uh, you can do so online. Uh, otherwise, we, we do have a, a giving box, uh, I think at that table out there. If you're feeling led to give or learn more about the partner ministries that, uh, that we've connected with who are doing boots on the ground work, for those that are in need in our community. Come talk to me, Drew, Kelly, Sadie. We'd, we'd love to, to chat with you about that as well. Uh, these are the ways that we can respond to say, God, I need your help. I would like to become like a Lazarus. So let's pray. Father, we are so, so grateful 
that you are a God who looks down on the lost and lowly and responds. And responds in such a mighty way as to send your son Jesus to be born into this world, to live a righteous and perfect life, to die a sinless death as payment for our own sinful lives and to see him raised from the dead, conquering grave and saying, death, you don't get the last word. May our hearts not become hard. May we heed your warnings. May we recognize our lostness and our need for help and our need to be redeemed. God, we praise Praise you that you are the redeemer and the finder of lost things. May we trust in you, the one who is trustworthy and grow our faith in the one who has always been faithful. In Jesus' name, amen.